ever had that moment when you've, uh, when you've walked into a room and you realize that you could cut the atmosphere with a knife? Because you realize that there are two people who are in the middle of a conflict, in the middle of a fight, and you walk in. They're not expecting you to walk in, and you don't know what's coming as you walk through the door, but you walk in, and suddenly you see shifty eyes, and the body's just so, and it's silent. Have you ever walked in on, on a fight before? Okay? Totally awkward. I've done it. I've had people walk in on my fights before, um, and uh, it's not a... It's not a pleasant moment. Um, but, but so what we see in Galatians chapter 5, this is the last chapter in the book of Galatians, but Paul has just walked in on a conflict. He's walked in on a fight. And Paul being who he is, if it was me, I'd probably make my excuses and sidle out the room and, you know, pretend that nothing's going on. And I don't know, maybe if I was feeling particularly pastoral, I might follow up with them later on. But Paul, instead of that, what he does is he addresses the, yeah, the elephant in the room. And uh, Paul recognizes that he needs to address the, the fight, you know, the conflict, because this isn't a conflict between two two. Um, yeah, two people, um, even though what we've been reading throughout the book of Galatians has been really, you know, we've seen uh, the Judaizers on one side and the gospel on the other. But now what happens is that this external conflict is now kind of moving internal. And, and Paul sees that what's going on is that there's actually a conflict between, say, me and me, or between you and you. It's a bit of a maybe civil war. He sees that this is, is going on. And Paul knows that he needs to address it um, because there's no one who's exempted from this fight. We're all going through this fight. You know, if you read in the book of Romans chapter 7, he actually talks very, in very powerful language about this internal conflict that goes on within us. Um, and so, if you're in Christ this morning, then this conflict that's going on is between your old nature, the old you, uh, known as the flesh, and your new nature, or this person that you are in Christ, okay? And so, so but, uh, you know, to use Paul's words, Paul says that it's a, it's a fight between slavery and freedom, between slavery and freedom. Now, one of the unfortunate things about being a Christian, especially in Canada or the UK or wherever, is that we feel that we need to, protect, we need to pretend as Jesus follows that we don't have any conflicts going on, that we don't have, have uh, these uh, fights going on, that we don't have these secret wars going on in our lives. And we know it's nonsense, and we all know it's nonsense, but we all feel that we have to pretend that we are completely unified and we all love Jesus every day of the week with all that we have, and there's never any secret battles going on, okay? Lie. Not true. So I still struggle with losing my temper, with lust, with negativity, with judgmentalism, and with, and with pride. And my, my temptation when I'm facing any one of these sins is to try to fix myself, which only leads to more slavery rather than bringing my true self to the Lord, and letting him fix me, letting him heal me. So I'm inviting us each this morning to kind of walk in on this internal room that is in each of our hearts and to face the conflict 
that's happening. Let's not change the subject. Let's, let's not walk back out of the door. But instead, let's engage because this conflict this morning is between slavery and freedom. It's between slavery and freedom. My, my hopes over these ne- this week and next week, next week is our last sermon in the book of Galatians, is that my hope is that we can choose, either for the first time or maybe once again, choose freedom in Jesus over slavery. That's what I want, is that as we walk away from these two sermons, is that we choose freedom in Jesus over slavery. Now, Galatians 5 gives us a comprehensive insight into what slavery is and how slavery operates in our lives. And it also gives us a very good insight into what freedom is and how freedom operates in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on slavery, not so much of the freedom. Um, And so, you know, yeah, let's say that slavery is here in the blue corner. Okay, this is slavery. Okay, because of course... Slavery loses, and I beat you, Kyle. So, (laughs) yeah, the pastor always wins. Yeah, you should try living in the same house as one. Okay, so uh, here we have sin, here we have slavery in the blue corner, and here we have freedom. And hopefully, you know, what we will see is that freedom always wins, right? That's that's. You know, the goal. Um, And then next week, we will move our perspective from slavery over to freedom and see what's happening there in the red corner. So firstly, uh, let's just have a little insight into freedom, and then we'll focus the rest of the sermon on slavery. This freedom which we have, as we see in the book of Galatians chapter 5, is in Christ. It's freedom of Christ. Uh, We do not free ourselves. Let's just get the, oh, let me just turn on my thing. I, uh, I'm going to be good today. There we go. So, so we, we start by realizing that freedom is in Christ, right? So, so this book, this chapter starts off with these words. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Everyone say that together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Um, so what that means is that Jesus doesn't set us free from the sweatshops of sin only to re-enslave us afterwards. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's one of those sentences that when you read it, it sounds almost, it sounds almost simple, right? Aren't you stating the obvious that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free? But it almost sounds absurd. But Paul wouldn't have said it if we didn't need to hear it, if the Galatian Christians didn't need to hear it. But we do need to hear it because as this, as verse 1 carries on, our default mode is to let ourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Okay, it's like we don't know what to do with freedom. And so we shackle ourselves back up just like, you know, the Israelites wanted to return back to Egypt. And so As we look at the battle between freedom and slavery this morning, we're going to look at each opponent in turn, and then we're going to ask, um, and then we're going to let Jesus um, ask us the question that he asked in Mark 10, 51, which is, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, Jesus comes to us and says, what do you want me to do for you? So let's start by looking at slavery. First, when we... um, 
choose slavery to self-righteousness or slavery to the law or slavery to sin, then Christ is actually devalued in our lives, okay? Uh, Verse 2 says this, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, then Christ will be of no value to you at all. When you choose slavery to the law, Christ becomes no of, of no value to you. When you try to earn your righteousness in his eyes through the works which you do, Jesus suddenly becomes of no value to you. Um, so whether it's circumcision or Bible reading or showing up to church on Sunday uh, if or uh, Whatever it is, if it's not rooted in love for Jesus, then at that moment, Jesus becomes of no value at all. Why? Because he's no longer your savior. You have a new savior. And that new savior turns out to be a slave master. Verse 3 says, again, I declare to you every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. We... I I think we all like to have a little bit of legalism in our lives, right? We all like to have that thing that we kind of use, um, you know, to look at each other through. It's, you know, it's a filter. And we say, oh, because you do that, then you're not really righteous. Or because you don't do that, you're not really righteous. But usually it's not everything. Usually it's just one little thing. We all like to have a little bit of legalism in our lives. But as soon as we have that one thing that we judge ourselves by or judge each other by, whatever it is, um, that what we're doing is we're, we're, uh, we're trying in our own strength to make God love us and make God accept us. And suddenly we have to obey the whole law. If you're choosing one little thing to focus on, then you have to be consistent and you have to try to you know, to follow the whole law. This is saying us, uh, you know, to us that the law isn't um, like a buffet where you get to choose. You know, you have to eat everything on the table. And so really, friends, God doesn't say to us or he doesn't let us say, well, in this area of my life, God, I choose and I trust in Jesus' grace. But in this area, whether it's anger or lust or pride or, or whatever, well, I need to work that out myself. You don't help me with that, God. I'm going to work it out myself. If you're trusting in your own works, even in just one little part of your life, then you find out that it's actually a sort of a package deal. You have to obey the whole law. And this alienates us from Christ. A slave to the law or a slave to sin is alienated from Christ. Verse 4 says this, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from, from Christ. And in a sense, these words should fill us with fear um, because, because what does it look like? What does it look like for someone who follows Jesus, someone who loves Jesus to be alienated from him. What does that even look like? How does that work out? Well, I think that actually some of us are living that. Um, you know, and so if we're trying our hardest, Jesus doesn't look at our good works and he doesn't say, well, you know, A for effort. He's not impressed with our hard work. He, we don't get extra points for sincerity or for, or for our good intentions. In fact, our efforts to save ourselves 
serve to alienate us from Christ. So if you're trusting in your own ability to keep the law, then at that moment you start to have a rift in your life that starts to separate you from, from Jesus. And then slaves aren't just alienated from Christ. Verse 4 actually goes on. It says, you have fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace. This is sort of the shadowy netherworld of the Christian life where many of us live, but none of us really want to talk about. Uh, We are alienated from Christ. We have fallen away from grace. And what that means is that the warmth of Jesus' presence and love and grace and help uh, no longer touches our face. We we, we can't feel Jesus' kindness anymore. We are cold and alone, even though we still might be in the kingdom. We are slaves. Now, verse... uh, Seven shows us that continued slavery, if we choose to continue in that state, then it's a choice. Um, Because what happens is that many times we don't start out thinking, how can I get enslaved? Okay, we that's that's not not our thoughts. Often it's circumstances outside of our control. Maybe someone hurts us or someone wounds us and someone kind of knocks us off our rhythm. Um, That's not our fault. And that's why in verse 7 it it says this, um, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from from obeying the truth? Uh, You know, so, yeah, the picture here is that someone's running the race that God has mapped out for them. You're in your lane and then suddenly out of nowhere someone moves over from their lane and they cut in on you and they knock you off your stride. Maybe it's words from a friend or words of advice or a meme that we read that maybe makes us question things or a tweet that points us away from grace and points us towards earning our salvation. Uh, whenever something, that, something like that happens, first of all, we aren't expecting it, but, but, but someone has just actually cut in on our race. And when this happens, it's easy for us to start to trip and to stumble and fall. And uh, like I said, at this point, this is not our fault. But when you start to feel yourself starting to stumble, this is where your choices actually begin. Uh, So are you going to fall all the way down? Or if you are down on the ground, are you going to stay there? Or are you going to get back up again and start running again? Psalm 1 actually talks about walking in step with the wicked, uh, or standing in the way that sinners take, or sitting in the company of mockers. And what someone shows us is that this kind of process of stumbling is a progression. Um, running turns to walking, turns to standing, turns to sitting. And when someone cuts in on you, when someone cuts in on your race, when someone t- um, when someone um, kind of moves you off your rhythm, we're not sure how to react. And in that moment, our run can actually turn into a walk and our walk walk can turn into standing still and our standing still leads us, if we're not careful, to us there, sat on the ground. And when we're sat down, it's easy to stop. I've experienced this many times. If I'm running with, you know, if I have a good, healthy running regimen in the morning, It's not hard to wake up each morning and to keep running, but it's when I stop, which I'm there now. I stop, 
I've stopped for a year. I've stopped for more than a year. I'm probably never going to start running again. Why? Because I've stopped. Once you stop, it's hard to start again. Uh, because, you know, to stand up and to start walking and to start running takes work. It takes energy. And so, friends, if your race has been cut in on, if you've been listening to lies from your spouse or the world or friends or media or the news and you've got into your head that Jesus' grace is not sufficient for you, uh, that you can only rely on your own circumstances, that this particular sin you have to keep to yourself and just try to work it through your, yourself, then in a sense, friends, you're sat down on the track of your life. And my advice isn't to, to start running again, okay? My advice is to start trusting Jesus to lift you from that seating place so that you're standing uh, once again and then to start walking you know, gently with the Lord and then as you start to build up that strength again, then you can start running again, running in the Holy Spirit. You know what? I, I think that Satan's um, or one of Satan's most successful ploys is to make us think that we are write-offs, that we are no longer in the race, that, uh, you know, but as long as you have, as long as your synapses are functioning, as long as you have breath in your lungs and, and a heartbeat, then there is hope. There is hope for you to start running again. And so walking leads to standing, and, le- and standing uh, uh, leads to sitting. Then you have to reverse that. And so the sitting needs to lead to standing, and standing needs to lead to walking, and walking eventually needs to running again. You just have to reverse the process. Uh, but it's really key in that moment that we are gracious to ourselves, and we allow God to lift us back onto our feet and walking again in the Holy Spirit and then running against once more. Don't turn that into legalism, right? I have to do it myself. No, let God lift you. Let him walk with you and run with you. Um, I think as well that Satan likes to make us think that Jesus wants us enslaved, that somehow we're not really good enough, that Jesus' kingdom is actually better off without us. And, uh, but uh, Paul, in verse 8, um, speaks really powerfully to this. He says, no, that slavery does not come from Jesus. He says that, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Okay, If you're thinking those th- thoughts, that, that you're a write-off and there's no hope, that kind of th- uh, thinking does not come from Jesus. It comes from Satan. But why it's a, a successful lie is that it's a subtle lie and it spreads, right? It's, it it uh, spreads really quickly, you know. In fact, we don't even notice it, which is why in verse 9, Paul says this, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. When we allow sin to run our lives or the law to run our lives, it starts off small. It starts off like just a tiny bit of yeast, but then it spreads through the whole, the whole batch of dough. It, it, it infects our minds and our hearts, our marriages, our households, um, into friendship groups. Into, uh, you know, it, it can even spread into churches, this uh, mindset uh, that leads 
us to slavery, and we don't often see slavery until it's maybe too late, and those shackles are on us once again, and we wonder, how did it happen? This is how it happens by a little yeast working through. So, so far this morning, we've seen that slavery is a burden, um, oh, that uh, Slavery is a burden, that slavery devalues Christ, that a slave is not free to pick and choose. You know, you can't just choose a little bit of legalism, you're choosing everything. That uh, a slave is alienated from Christ, that a slave has fallen away from grace, and that, that slavery often surprises us and comes out of nowhere. But if we continue in that slavery, then it's a choice. We've also learned that slavery is not from Jesus, and that slavery is both subtle and really pervasive. Um, But slavery also removes the offense of the cross. Verse 11 says this. It says, brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. We live in a world, friends, where self-improvement is salvation. And so we have all of humanity locked in their cell, as it were, and we're, you know, and everyone is kind of shackled onto the walls. Um, but if you're someone, one of these superhumans who's on social media and it's all about self-improvement and hashtag this and hashtag that, and if you're someone who can make your shackle stretch just one extra inch, so you've got that one extra inch of freedom through your own hard works, if you're one of those magic people, those superhumans, then the rest of us who are shackled against the wall look at you with your extra inch of freedom and we're super impressed and we're like, we need to follow you because you obviously know what life's about, right? But then, but then if the world is kind of ooing and eyeing about these uh, superhumans who've somehow through their own effort allowed, you know, had this extra inch of liberty and freedom, then, and then someone walks into the jail and says, you could be totally free and absolutely free from your shackles if you place your trust in Jesus. Uh, he doesn't just want to give you an extra inch of slack to your chains. That's not what Jesus is about. He wants to remove your chains absolutely. Well, you can understand why in a world that's based on self-effort and self-work work and self-worth, why that would be such an offensive message. Who are you to come into my jail cell, which isn't even a jail cell, I'm actually happy here, and say to me that I can be free simply through trusting in someone. That's such an offensive message. And so rather than preaching that radical freedom message, what we do, in a sense, is we add in a little circumcision here or works righteousness there or legalism there or self-efforts, you know, just so that we don't sound too insane um, in the ears of the world. Uh, But, and what happens when we add in, you know, this message of you can do it, uh, it might make our message less offensive, but it leaves the people in slavery because they're no longer free from their shackles. Instead, we're just teaching them how to get that extra inch of slack. You know, the world needs to hear that God does not help those 
who help themselves. This is not the message of the gospel. Instead, God helps those and only those who who are not able to help themselves and who choose repeatedly not to help themselves. This is the offense of the cross and this is our hope. Now, a lot that I've been talking about this morning is freedom from the law or freedom from self-effort. This, this, this particular brand of slavery is called legalism. Uh, but there's also a freedom that, or the, no, sorry, there's also a slavery that comes about when we use our freedom wrongly, okay? This is not legalism. So what happens is that we're set free by Christ and then we transfer, and then we transform that freedom that we have in Jesus into a different brand of slavery. And this slavery, this, this new type of slavery, is called license. So you've got legalism and you've got license. And license kind of has in it this uh, sense that, um, that because Jesus has taken care of our sin problem, we now have the license to do whatever we want. Because we're good with God, we can now live however we wish, you know, uh, you know that James Bond films outright, and he has a license to to kill. And some people think that as Christians, we now have a license to sin. Uh, but Galatians five tells us that both license and legalism are both slavery. Verse thirteen says this: It says, "You, my brothers and sisters, were called." To be free. That is our calling, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, the old you. Um, So, if you can imagine with me this morning that there's a church, maybe like our church, and it's full of Christians who are enslaved, and half of the Christians are enslaved to legalism, the law, and half are enslaved to license, this thinking that I can do whatever I want. But, of course, neither group thinks that they're enslaved. They just think that they are right. Um, Now, it's not a stretch to imagine that that this church, where half the church is enslaved to legalism and half the church is enslaved to license, it's, it's not hard to imagine that that church is a brutal place to worship or to be. It's a place that lacks joy and lacks peace and uh, lacks hope. Instead, you have the legalists kind of looking down their noses at the licensed folks, and then you have the licensed folks mocking the rigidity of the legalists. There's no trust, and there's no unity. There's, there's, there's no common purpose, and there's no freedom. This is the kind of church that is described in verse 15. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. What a, what a picture of a church. Like, oh, it just makes me cringe. Um, awful. This is a church that is set against itself, that it actually self-destructs, where being right is more important than love. And this church is, is dysfunctional as well because it's no longer based on the principles of the kingdom of of life um, because it's now operating um, through um, the acts of the flesh and if you want to know what these acts of the flesh are how do we know if if we're a church like verse 15 well verse 19 tells us what the acts of the flesh are and it says that they are actually rather obvious Um, it says the acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, 
and discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as I read through this list, uh, I wonder if any of these are reflective of your life. Now, it's easy for us to look at that and go, well, that's not me, and that's not me, and, you know, and that's not me. But I, I wonder, as I was reading through that, was there anything that reflects your life right now? Uh, now, maybe it's not obvious to you, but if you were to ask the people around you, they would be able to look at that list and go, I know exactly the sin that you're exhibiting right now. Uh, so why don't we just maybe pause for a moment and just ask the Lord to show us if there's any of these which, are, which have hold in our lives. So, so let's just have a moment in quiet. And then if we were to pull back a little bit more, and I wonder for you this morning, which slavery are you most inclined towards? Are you most inclined towards the slavery of legalism? Or are you most inclined towards the slavery of license? Which, which groove do you most naturally fit into? I think that I most naturally fit into the groove of legalism. Um, but I can also see there are some pretty strong um, tendencies in my life towards license. So it's not necessarily all that clear. But then, you know, the question is, of course, what is the alternative then to this slavery of legalism and the slavery of license? Uh, verse 14 tells us, it says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the answer. This is the solution to all that we've been reading in the book of Galatians. And maybe it seems a bit simplistic to you, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. I've heard this preached on so many times, and it's like this simple solution, and what we're left with is, you know, I just have to love my neighbor as myself. I can do that, but you can't. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself. I cannot love my neighbor as myself. And that is... that is the problem. Um, in your own strength, it's, it's not humanly possible for you to love your neighbor as yourself. All the care and the concern and the money and the rituals and the time and the food and the, and the fun and the streaming services and all this that you spend on yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself. It's not a simplistic solution. It's an impossible command. So where is the hope? If slavery is a burden, if slavery 
devalues Christ, if a slave is not free to pick and choose, if a slave is alienated from Christ, if continued slavery is a choice, if slavery is both subtle and pervasive, if slavery removes the offense of the cross, if slavery is freedom used wrongly, if it's both uh, license and legalism, and if God's solution in the midst of all this slavery is to love your neighbor as yourself, which is impossible, then where's the hope? Next week, we're going to look at the red corner. We're going to look at freedom. This is part two in this teaching and, and in this final message on the series on Galatians. So there is, a, there is a slavery to be shunned, and there is a freedom that we need to seek, which is why in verse one, Paul says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of of slavery. So how do we access this freedom? How do we fulfill the law to love your neighbor as yourself, which is impossible? Verse 16 tells us, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not free to do whatever you want. So that you are not uh, to do whatever you want. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Only God, the Holy Spirit, operating within you, transforming your affections can lead you into freedom. Only he can bring peace to this battle that is waging in your hearts. And this, and this fight is going on between the flesh and the spirit, between slavery and freedom. And the one that wins is the one that you feed, right? And so this morning, um, I want to kind of sing this last song um, as a time to respond by saying to God, I give you my yes, even though I don't know exactly how it will all work out. Um, I, I want to confess my license or my legalism, um, my, my failure over and over again to love my neighbor as myself. And Lord, as, you know, as we sing this song, we can say to him, Lord, I'm choosing not to fix myself. Instead, I'm going to allow you to work in me as I confess my sin and as I see you bringing a victory in my life.